Hi, this is Amy Hall. I'm here with Greg Kokel, and you're listening to the Hashtag STRask podcast from Stand to Reason. There it is. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> All right, Greg. It's been a while since we've been at the mic <laughs> together. Amy wasn't sure how to start, so I had a reminder of the name of the show. Yeah. And we got it. We got right, it, Greg. Yeah, there you go. Okay, um, today we have some questions about the Bible. So we're going to start with one from Megan. Okay. I started seeing on several church websites the statement, we believe all the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the Word of God, fully inspired and without error in the original manuscripts. For me, this raises a red flag that indicates the church doesn't believe Bibles we, we receive today are without error and hence at progressive Christianity. Am I correct in being wary of this type of belief statement about the Bible? Uh, no, I understand the um, the concern raised by that. But just to let you know, there's nothing to worry about that statement, because that is the standard classical way of uh, stating a commitment to full inerrancy of Scripture, because our view is the inerrancy is in the, in the originals, in the um, the autographs, as they call them, because we can't, we don't affirm the inerrancies, inerrancy of copies that have errors. Um, and so, uh, and, and a lot of copies do. They have they have variations. They're called variants. And in fact, there are tens of hundreds of thousands of variants throughout the New Testament. Um, but because we have so many manuscripts, we're able to move past the variants and to be able to calculate or figure out what the original rendering actually was. So um, the the fact that there are variants is the reason why the statement is made in this way. Our commitment is to inerrancy of the originals and not of any particular document that we have in our hands at the moment, a copy of the original, all right? Um, and uh, we don't have to be concerned about that because we have the tools with the many copies that we have to be able to reproduce the original which we believe is inerrant, um, with a high degree of confidence. So there's n nothing to be alarmed at. It's a standard statement. In fact, that our own statement of <laughs> on Standard Reasons website is probably worded the same way. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, it's important to remember that the the text of the Bible is a non-physical thing. It's a message, a, a worded message that's preserved through many manuscripts, mm -hmm. not just one manuscript. Right. And like you said, we, we use the many manuscripts to figure out what the original manuscript said. But imagine if there had only been one, then someone could easily change it. We would never know. Right. So I think this is the way God's done it. This is the way he's preserved it. And so that's what we're mm -hmm. affirming. Yeah. And just to clarify um, a comment you made, I think that could be misunderstood. Um uh, there's a difference between a type and a token. So I'm going to use some philosophical words that will help make refined distinctions for the lack of confusion, okay? Um, tokens are, um, are representations of the type. So when I write on the page here, the word became flesh, okay? The tokens are the, the letters that form words in English, which have a meaning, which which are meant to capture our understanding of those particular words, and those that meaning is the invisible, 
sense, the invisible words, if you will, that those physical tokens represent. Okay, and um, and to make this clear, you could have the same word in many different places where the physical tokens are represented. That's why we have two Bibles sitting in front of us, yours and mine. The word became flesh is the same thing, but that's the type. But the tokens in each book are the thing that points to that same individual type. Okay, um, or when I say the the verse, the word became flesh. That's a different token representing the type. So, so the the type, the as you put it, the invisible word, so to speak, which I think might give some people pause when they hear that, um, is actually the right way to characterize it, and it can be captured or represented in a written token or in a spoken token. It can also uh, be represented in different languages, which represent tokens of a different sort spoken or written, of the same type. So we are preserving the notion that there is a a, a, a a Scripture that is the Word of God that can be represented in different ways, and, uh, and, and sometimes the representations might have inaccuracies, but we have the ability by using the various manuscripts to, de- to, to come to a conclusion of what that original token represented, which original we don't have anymore. So there's the clarification for the more philosophically-minded tokens and types. Okay, thanks, Greg. Here is a related question from Tony. Moving right along here. No, this is—it's going along in the same direction here. Uh Uh, Okay, so here's Tony's question. Why is Mark 16, 9 through 20 in the Bible? How can we say this is the inerrant Word of God if Mark didn't write Mark— and then more unknown people added on to that. Was all that God's plan? Well, that Mark wrote Mark is not part of the inerrant Bible. The record that we attribute to Mark is the inerrant Bible. The authorship, in the case of the Gospel of Mark, um, is, is, is not part of inerrancy because it's not in the text. Now, in Paul's letters, he says, I, Paul— right to you, so to speak. Well, now you have the authorship embodied in the text, and and that that representation in the text is part of the inspired text. Okay, so just to clarify on the Gospel of Mark, um, what has happened over the years is um, as time has uh, passed, we have discovered more manuscripts older manuscripts, more complete manuscripts in some cases, um, or some might argue less complete, because when we discover older manuscripts, which arguably are going to be more accurate than more recent manuscripts, and there's a debate about that in uh, the field, um, the more recent manuscripts, we have more examples of that, more, more, more of what's called the majority text. But the majority text um, is is actually not as old, and this that's why there's more of them. And so the question is, do you go with the 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 preponderance of representations that's more recent, or do you go with the fewer representations that are more ancient? And I think the second is probably wisest. And so what happens though, because there's this debate, and they find older manuscripts that just don't include some of the things more recent uh, that are some of the manuscripts that are more recent. So what now? What do you do? 
it seems by doing careful textual analysis that some of the things that people thought were in the Bible, like the long ending of Mark, um, actually were not part of the original. It came from somewhere. We don't know where they came from, but um, it's pretty clear that that's the case. Well, um, two things here. Um, There's almost nothing in the long ending of Mark except for maybe snake handling or something like that, or at least some pe- the way some people understand that reference. That's not in other parts that are not contested, okay? And the fact is, in the book of Acts, Paul did get bit by a snake, and he shook it off, and it, even though it was poisonous, he didn't get hurt. So it isn't like the people had all these false ideas about God from a text that turns out to be more recent and added to the text. It didn't cause any damage. But since it had been classically part of Scripture, um, and in especially the what's called the Textus Receptus, which is the underlying Greek manuscripts that uh, were the source for the King James Version, very popular for hundreds of years, um, new translators will put will include that material, but then s- clarify in the uh, in the t- the margins that the, that earliest manuscripts do not contain this, so the a reader is alerted that this is probably not part of the the original, but it has been part of the biblical record, the translations for a long time. So we're just leaving it in there, but be forewarned. This is also true, by the way, about the woman caught in adultery that we find at the end of John six and the beginning of John seven. Well, it turns out that that account actually shows up in different manuscripts in different Gospels, different locations. And the earliest manuscripts do not include that. You know, the, the whoever is, uh, he is without sin cast the first stone, that whole incident. Uh, I actually think that's an authentic incident, that it actually took place, but that it was not in the original documents that came in later. Um, that's another discussion, though. But... Um, uh, there's an, another example of something that has become very, very popular, but the rendering in scriptures nowadays makes it very clear that this was probably not in the original the way we're reading it now, just so you know, kind of thing. And uh, and therefore, I think <clears throat> people would really be uncomfortable if all of a sudden these parts started disappearing <clears throat> because they think people were taking away the Word of God, which is what some people claim, especially the King James-only crowd. But if it's not textually supported in earliest manuscripts, it's probably not in the earliest manuscripts, including the original. And so it's good that the Bible reader know that, and that's why it's still still there, but with qualification. And that's important to remember for the first question also, that our Bibles will note when something is contested. And there are still people who argue that the ending of Mark does belong there, and there's still arguments over that. But you can always look and see if something is is contested. Mm-hmm. And so then don't build your theology on, yeah, <laughs> on a, a contested, contested passage. And most of the time, anything that's important is going to be re- repeated quite a number of times, theologically important. And so um, you don't have to depend on one contested passage. I, I remember Bart Ehrman, who, who has made a... Um, his whole career uh, based on, as a writer, based on challenging the Bible and the the legitimacy of the New Testament. And he'll boldly claim, this is a verse that's not in your Bible. Then he'll cite a passage in uh, one of the synoptics, for example, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and say, this is a contested verse, it's not in the original. 
Well, the irony is, since it's a part of the synoptics, it does occur in one of the other uh, the other Gospels, and it's not contested there. It's not a variant. So it is in your Bible. It's just not in every place where it occurs. It's as uncontested. So um, all to say, there's nothing, there's nothing to worry about with these variations. This is resolvable. Do you have any thoughts on his comment on, I mean, you said a quick thing at the beginning, but Mark not writing Mark. Do you have any thoughts on whether well, that's the case? Well, we have or? extra biblical information from Eusebius, I think, that um, Mark wrote down the account uh, in his gospel based on his association with Peter. So Peter is the apostolic authority for the content in Mark. Okay, there's an interesting little comment in Mark, by the way, uh, that there are indications that this is the case, not just from Eusebius, but from details or whatever. And a Mark being what might be called the amanuensis or the the um, the scribe who records all of this. And in the... Um, in the scene on, on Good Friday where Jesus is betrayed, there's a sentence about a young man who is uh, watching the events, and they try to grab him, and he runs away, and uh, they grabbing his cloak, and he runs away, and, you know, a cloak comes off, and so he's streaking naked in his escape. What the heck is that all about? You know, why is that in there? Well, it, it is likely uh, that that's Mark. John Mark, who was a young man um, at the time, and of course later became a disciple of Peter's and, and uh, be, became the one who recorded this. It's, it's, it's likely he inserted that autobiographically, even though it has no real relevance to the, uh, to the flow of thought there. So that's another indication that Mark was probably the author of that. But um, the authorship um, is determined by other things than attestation in the text, okay? If we're holding to inerrancy, then if the text says, I, Paul, write this to you, then Paul is the one writing based on our commitment to inerrancy. But if it just says the gospel, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think that's the way Mark begins, uh, then we don't know who wrote that from the internal evidence, we know it from the external evidence. And sometimes we're not even clear about that. And I'm not talking about the Gospels here. I'm talking about uh, the book of Hebrews, because that's another one where no, they're not sure who wrote it. Paul didn't write it. And it's clear because of some statements in there. It cannot be Pauline. But um, that, uh, anyway, just to say. Okay, let's go on to a question from Sabra. I read that the Gospels are to be harmonized, or rather, are meant to be complementary. I can't find that in the Gospels. Did the writers intend for us to do that? Well, the statement that the Gospels are complementary is a, an assessment uh, from the outside. So we read these different Gospels. Each writer had his own intention with writing to accomplish a certain thing. We read in Luke, for example, at the beginning, he's giving an orderly account to Theophilus of things that he's heard about. Okay, so that's the purpose of the gospel. Um, we we learn in uh, in in John, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, the purpose of his gospel, and this is at the end, is to give evidence that Jesus is the Christ, so that we might believe in him. 
Um, and that's why he cites the different miracles he has and gives the account of Jesus' life, okay? Um, so we can, in some cases, have individual characterizations of what this author was about, what he was trying to do. But when we stand back and we see, well, these are distinct accounts in many ways. There are lots of crossover, except in John. John's very unique, uh, mostly unique material. Um, We realize, well, these guys were trying to do different things, okay? They weren't trying to repeat exactly what the other ones were saying. They're trying to give different perspectives based on the intent that they wrote their gospel with. And so in that sense, we conclude these complement each other. Each one gives us a little different set of information, a little different perspective that all four together um, give us a much richer, fuller understanding of Jesus of Nazareth. Right. They didn't set out to say, okay, I'm going to say this part and you say that part. (laughs) It just turns out that because they were writing their testimony— you see things that fit together in in ways that are actually surprising, mm-hmm. and you can read about these. They're called I, I don't know if this is exactly, unintended consequences, um, or undesigned coincidences, undesigned coincidences. <laughs> yeah, well, I was close. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. So they are complementary in that way, but it wasn't as if they they were trying to do that. It's just, it's just that's just a feature of testimony. Mm-hmm. So that's how it turns out. Yeah, an example of that, just so people are clear on it, is you have Jesus being struck, and then people say, who struck you? And well, why would you ask that question when somebody's standing in front of you and hits you? Well, what you don't know is from that gospel account is something you do learn in a different gospel account that they also blindfolded him. And when you put the two together, then you realize what's going on. Jesus was blindfolded, then he was struck, then they asked him, who struck you? Okay, and so that's the, 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 there was no collaboration, obviously, between the writers uh, in the sense that, wait, he left that out, so I've got to add this information so it makes it clear. No, they were just giving their accounts uh, of what happened, and this creates some ambiguities, but when you read all of them, so many of these ambiguities or points of apparent confusion are resolved. So when she asks, you know, did the writers intend for us to do that, to, to harmonize them or to put everything together? I think in a way, yes, because th- that's in the sense that if you are giving true testimony, then, of course, they want you to see it as true testimony and put all the, the truth that they have yeah. together. Not that they were trying to do it from different angles on purpose and fill in different things, but of course they want you to see it as being true testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, that's clear from the text. Mm-hmm. And so just in because that's the nature of what it is, then of course they're going to expect you to harmonize them well, in some you, way. Well, would it be better to say that um, maybe God intended us to see the holistic picture, not that when Mark is writing, because he's writing first, so he ha- can't have intention about somebody else's right. writing that's to come later. Um, they were just writing their things, but what God, God superintending the process with the four authors is intending to give us a richer, fuller picture. Right. And um, and so we should see it and understand right. it in that way. I think what I would say, the 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 writers were intending is for us to take it as true testimony. Yes. Uh-huh. And so, of course, they don't want people to pick and choose the parts they're going to believe. Mm-hmm. They want them to take it all together. Right. 
It, but I agree. Yeah, God was the one who was putting the details together yeah. so that they would give us a full picture. When I think of intention, I think this it was in the mind of the writer at the time. I'm writing this because somebody else is writing another one, and I hope that they all will people will read them all in an all right. Well, that's it for today. Thank oh, you, Megan, Tony, fast. and Saber. We appreciate hearing from you. I always like talking about the Bible, <laughs> as you all know, hopefully by now. <laughs> all right. If you'd like to send us your question, send it on Twitter with the hashtag STRask, or you can go to our website. If you just go to our hashtag STRask podcast page, you'll find a link there so you can leave us your question. We look forward to hearing from you. This is Amy Hall and Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. 